Welcome back. This is episode 47 of the Morning Brushback. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. I'm here remotely. We've got an awesome guest today. And of, for, of course, I'll introduce my co-host first. Robert Stevens, future mayor of Chicago, is here. How are you, Bobby? <laughs> I'm good. These last two guests are making me question my school background. <laughs> yes, it's going to get even rougher today, I think. And then our, our guest today, Barton Smith. Uh, professor from Utah State University. Barton, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So if you're new to our show, we had a, a fun Twitter thread after Alan Nathan's episode, which was our previous episode. Um, Barton and I were chatting a bunch. I've read some of his work in the past about uh, he works in aerodynamics and has a cannon where he's shooting baseballs out all day and testing spin and it's pretty fascinating stuff. So we were talking about the cutter and got down a pretty long rabbit hole and decided let's talk about this on the show. And I think one of the things that unites us is we don't really know what's going on with cutters. They're fascinating enigmas. So, um, Barton, how did you get into baseball aerodynamics? Uh, it's funny cause it's come full circle just this morning that <clears throat> my kid pitches, he was about nine or 10 and somebody was talking to him about two seam fastballs. And I asked the question, which you would think everybody knows the answer to what's the difference between a two seam and a four seam. And uh, um, I've been chasing that stupid question ever since. Uh, we fired um, a two-seam and a four-seam out of a pitching machine, and I would encourage everybody to do this if you have a, a pitching machine that's, that's consistent. And you'll see that they do exactly the same thing. There's no, no distinction between them at all, which um, that got me started. And uh, I've, uh, I've gone back and forth about this many, many times since then. But Wait, it's we, just like you gonna, said, simple questions that you think everybody knows the answer to that you, you can really find a very deep. Um, so let me talk about that because that kind of broke my brain right off the bat. <laughs> You're saying two seamers don't do anything different compared to a four seamer. Is that correct? Not, not if you put them in a pitching machine because and I, and I, I probably should have made this distinction. Pitching machines are 100% efficient. Yeah. Uh, there's there's only two machines I know of in the world. One is Traject, a brand new machine coming out of Toronto, which I think everybody's going to hear about soon. And I'll give a shout out to those guys. It's an amazing machine that can put gyro on the ball. And uh, Washington State has one that can do that too. And I've, I've got to borrow it or use it once. Um, but they're, they're, that's a very rare commodity. Anything with wheels that you normally see and, and the cannon that we have, it's 100% efficient. So uh, it seems the, the seam effects that cause two seamers to be different I think happen when you impart a little bit of gyro to the ball. And, so when uh, you throw less than a perfect spinning fastball. So if you drilled a hole and spun a four seamer and you drilled the same hole through a two seamer and you threw them both, they're going to go, they're going to do the same thing. Yes. That's really interesting. So basically you, w what we could say then is that two seamers are essentially capitalizing on human error in a, in like a good way. Is that a reasonable yes, way? Yes. That is a good way to put it. But if you took that same error and you put it on a four seam, it wouldn't have the same effect. Yeah. That's interesting. So, yeah. Wait, no, so no, are we, go ahead. are we talking about like if you hold it as a four seam grip and then you hold it as a, like a traditional two seam grip and then throw it in a vacuum, they'll neither one will do anything other than just stay straight. Not in a vacuum. The, 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 the important point is that uh, and I have, here's my two seam ball that it's perfectly efficient. If I throw it so that this rod stays 
perpendicular to me as it goes in and you know, away from me. Right. And a two seam and a four seam is the same thing. If it's got some gyro, then all bets are off and, and a lot of things can happen. Okay. So there are, so the pitches themselves are different pitches. Like when pitchers are throwing them, I'm just trying to wrap my head around because I've seen some balls that I are unhittable come out right. of the pitcher's hand yeah. and I'm trying to, and I think so, when you see that what's happening is they do, they have put some gyro on it and, and, uh, and then it's doing something different. So, and I think that this is all about to become really apparent because of Hawkeye data. That's, it's going to, um, that's going to bust it open. We just, uh, I was just telling Dan earlier that, uh, Tom Tango put some data out on uh, Twitter this morning or last night, late last night that shows this for my friend, Jared Hughes. And, um, and, and so I, I think now that we know how to look at it, uh, it's going to be really obvious. Um, and that's just starting, but, the, the important point is that, I, that there was a um, caveat I put in there. If you load the balls into a pitching machine, then they're going to be the same. And that, what that does is lock it into 100% efficiency, no gyro, then they're the same. Gotcha. So let me back you up a little bit because you've already mentioned at least one word that I'm sure some percentage of my audience doesn't really know what that means, which is gyro. Can you <laughs> give us a brief overview? Imagine sure. that I'm a 12-year-old and Bobby's an 8-year-old because I think that would represent our our split here. Um, it's too early for that, Dan. <laughs> um, yeah, I, can you I, explain I, the key, the key components of what makes baseballs move or not move? Sure. Um, and I'm going to use this, this baseball to do it. So, um, and it, for now, let's not worry about the orientation. This is two seam, but let's, let's not worry about that. Okay. Uh, so the ball spins. If, if this ball is coming towards you and I threw it, then that's a, that's a fastball. It's spinning backward. It's going to, and that's going to generate force that way because of what we call Magnus effect. Um, if I find a way to throw the ball like that, which is what a, a lot of change-ups do, it's going to move that way. Uh, I hope I have that direction right. Yes, it's going to move that way if it's coming toward you mm -hmm. by Magnus effect. So that's what we call tilt or spin axis. And um, this is a fastball. That's a change-up. Um, then when you want to talk about gyro, which you need to talk about if you want to get into things like sliders, what that means is this rod is no longer, both ends of the rod are not at the same distance from you. One end's closer, that's gyro. That's basically it. And so it happens if I'm throwing the ball and I don't have my hand directly behind the ball, uh, and I'm, I should acknowledge here, I'm not a pitcher, I, I don't throw very well. And so I'm kind of faking it when I say things like this, but I've seen it. So this, uh, this would be a 100% efficient pitch on and let me back up. Efficiency is a, a metric of gyro. 100% efficiency means there's no gyro. And we call it efficiency uh, because that means that all of the spin is contributing to Magnus effect. So when you have gyro. Out and wasting. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. When you have some gyro, not all of it is. And so um, you have less movement due to the Magnus effect when you have some gyro. But uh, gyro introduces other interesting possibilities. So um, and I'm not going to attempt to say what a slider would look like because I really struggle with that. Um, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just not going to do that. <laughs> well, but, I think they're also really hard to, and we were talking about this off camera as well, which it, it, it's really hard to visualize what pitches look like at this slow, like you're showing the orientation. It's like, oh, this is what the pitch did. It's like, okay, great. But like Bobby is a hitter. He knows what a slider looks like at full speed. Right. And, and it's funny because you probably, probably couldn't tell. Yeah, it's slow speed. Right. Um, I have the opposite problem. I can't tell what they look like at full speed. So, because <laughs> I only look at them in, in, in high speed video. So. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think that's part, well, was part of our cutter discussion is that there's so few people that actually throw cutters 
that there's so few people that can say, hey, I've hit off them consistently, like really good ones, or I've caught them consistently. I'm obviously more catchers than probably hitters who've caught good cutters. But, um, I mean, Bob, a good slider has that dot. Where does the dot typically reside on a slider? Um, Not a good slider. I actually, I feel like a good slider doesn't have that dot. Like it's almost like you don't see it. Um, it's almost right in the middle. If I can, man, it's been a while since I've seen a slider like in the box, but it's almost like right in the middle. But if you, you seeing this it, point spinning around, is it? As it, I'm going to throw it something like that, and so I see as it's coming toward me, I see the ball spinning something like that. Yeah, I mean, from the dot itself is red. It's the seam, like you see the you see like basically it, it's circling around the seam. So if that yeah. post, so that ball that you have, Barton is if you put that pole or that pipe through it, and it and it intersected with mm, the seam, yeah, yeah. So you'll see like the closer? seam. That's closer. Um, yeah, but you would you would have that coming right out there. But it's not as I mean. It, I never say look for the dot on a slider. I'll never tell a player that because I don't also recall seeing it like every time I saw a slider. Like I'd see more of the hand and you kind of see the ball. I mean, really good sliders, you don't – it's almost – they look like fastballs. That's I mean, they look like they're okay. – right. That's, why that's what's making it – that's what's making like this pitch tunnel like a, when teams are now developing these like pitch uh, – what do they call those, Dan? Pitch tunneling – areas i don't know pitch I mean, development pitch, pitch, pitch tunnels is a just good way to describe the way different pitches will like separate from each other if you throw a fastball yeah that would go straight through the zone you throw a slider out of that same trajectory the way it would you know track no, down the same like tunnel the, cubs, the, the cubs have this like area of the, the stadium where they go and work on their pitches and it's like just high def cameras all around i don't oh. know what they call that area but they call it the pitching lab don't they yeah, yeah. maybe they might call it the pitching lab it's t- it's so the back to the dot I would say not. You don't see the dot on very good sliders, but you'd see it right in the middle, and it's definitely red, like the seams. So one of the things we want to get into is uh, Barton. You've done a lot of work with seam shifted wake, and you're going to kind of share that with us today. But I also want to hear. So what is essentially the mix? So you just talked about a slider. Like when I would teach kids, I'd say, "Hey, the slider is kind of a combination of you have to kind of get to the front of the ball to impart a little bit of like forward spin, kind of." And then you also get through the side of the ball to impart this bullet spin or the gyro spin. So it's like a mixture of the two. Curveballs are not that way. So could you kind of break down what you would say like the cocktail is for, you know, whatever smattering of pitches you'd like? Uh, sure. Uh, for what I know, and, and I'm, I'm just, you know, a year ago I knew nothing. So uh, I know about a year's worth of intense study on this. And I'm trying to teach my son how to, uh, how to throw these. And that's, that's, that's what I know. So, um, as I said, uh, there's a few that are really easy. That's a fastball, <laughs> and uh, that's a curveball. So, um, and that's if you throw the ball from a very high arm slot. If you're more uh, three quarter, like a lot of people are, then that fastball spins like this. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, like this, and the curveball spins like that. So generally, your curveball, uh, if it's working well, has the opposite movement of your fastball. So something I said on Twitter a while ago, and it seemed to really um, cause a little bit of a stir, not a good stir, was that a fastball and a curveball are the opposite of each other. And that's how I see them because they they have opposite break and they spin opposite ways. They're thrown totally differently, like you were saying. 
mm-hmm. curveball I throw by, um, well, I guess I don't break my wrist, right? That's a, something that coaches teach the kids. I, but I throw it like that, and they spin a lot. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me about curveballs is watching them. They spin more than a fastball does, which is, to me, kind of surprising biomechanically that you can spin the ball faster with your fingers on the front of yeah. it than you can from behind. And as a side effect of that, they move slowly because you're not pushing them with your strong fingers. So they, they tend to be really slow, and I think that's part of their appeal is that they're very different speed than the fastball. Um, so then change-ups, um, I understand about as well as I do cutters. Uh, <laughs> your video was very interesting to me. Man, I don't know if you have a baseball there, but uh, I you does. could uh, maybe show that, uh, show that grip that you were demonstrating in your YouTube video. But at the end of the day, um, a lot of modern change-ups spin uh, – you know, Michael Augustine calls it a disco ball for mm-hmm. reasons that I'm hoping are becoming obvious as I do that. But usually they're, they're a little tilted. And uh, what that does is that makes all the Magnus effects sideways. And, uh, and, and so they move uh, arm side generally, but they don't have much lift, so they, they drop. And I'm going to talk about seam-shifted wakes in just a minute. And, and I think a lot of pitchers, Strasburg, Scherzer, and a lot of others are using seam effects to make that drop even more. Uh, so um, that's a change. A slider we were just talking about. A cutter is a fastball that is thrown, I believe, and this is what Dan and I were talking about. Or is it? Bobby. Yeah. This is Bobby's thing. Or is it? Uh, yeah. I don't know if it is. Maybe. <laughs> so it, basically with your hand not, no longer behind the ball so that there is some gyro component to your fastball. And that's consistent to me with the small difference in speed that they get. The small difference in speed comes from the fact that your hand your fingers aren't pushing as efficiently as they are if you're like that. So they're usually a couple miles an hour slower. Similarly on the two-seamer, going back to my theory that two-seamers are basically less efficient four-seamers, I think that that's why they're usually a little slower. Um, quite often if you look at someone's sinker or two-seamer, it's just a couple miles an hour slower than their four-seamer. Mm-hmm. I used to think that was because of drag, but now I think it's because of the way it's thrown. It's a little, you're getting a little less push with your fingers. And I think that that's about as much as I know. <laughs> gotcha. I am a fan of you, Darvish. So I should probably be able to mention nine others, but I, I, I don't know them well enough. So, Dan, well, yeah. did, for, I'm, I'm just curious as, like a, as someone who doesn't pitch. Like you hear pitchers talk, and I don't have a baseball, but they're holding a baseball. They're talking about putting pressure on one finger, putting pressure on another finger, you know, if you're put, if you got pressure on the seam, like this is what I do and this is what makes, it makes the ball do this. Like how much of that do you teach or have you taught as far as pressure on fingers and that did you use as a pitcher? Cause I, it's all I hear when you're sitting next to pitchers. Well, I, so I don't know that you can actually like put pressure on the ball. Like I'm squeezing it hard with my index finger, but not with my middle finger because pitching is such a fast fluid, like relaxed motion. Like your arms are very whippy, obviously. I don't know that people are actually pushing on the ball at the moment of release. Like they say they could, that doesn't seem like that's reasonably possible. Um, all those things, like people thought that they were like really whipping through the ball, like their hand was laying back and that's why they were getting whipped. We've debunked that through high speed video too. Like the wrist is pretty much constant as you accelerate the ball. So, it, you know, if your wrist is pretty much constant, I don't think that there's really going to be a difference in finger pressure either. How could there be? I mean, your arm's going super duper, you know, 6,000, 7,000 degrees per second. So I think when guys say I put pressure on it, I think that means that's how they start it in their glove. Like, so they might be like, I'm pushing a little bit hard here. Like a one-seamer? As it becomes go time, I think they're just 
that they're just overloading the ball is I think what they actually mean. I don't have any real proof of that, but I don't see how that's reasonable. Now, I mean, like with my curveball grip, like I can, you know, stick it in there where there's some pressure naturally, like because my fingers are forked. So there's kind of like an elastic holding it there. Like, you know, my fingers are tense because it's jammed there, but I wouldn't call that pressure in the sense that you kind of think of putting pressure on something. I would just say that like pressure is formed because of the grip, but I'd say it's really just the grip. I wouldn't say it's something different and separate, but yeah, I don't know if, I mean, I, you hear like random guys will throw like one seamers and it's kind of like high, like literally yeah, holding yeah. the ball on one seam. I mean, yeah. maybe it's just cause they're, but that's just like, it's, it's holding a sinker like this where it's just coming off that one seam. But I don't know that you're really, again, I, I think that's something like there's a lot of athletes that say they do stuff. I'm sure Barton, you've heard tons of stories about that. Like, guys think they're doing one thing and then you get them on camera, you slow it down and they're not actually doing that. I think that's what finger pressure is personally. What's what you feel in your head and what actually happens. And yeah, I I think recognizing that is a big part of being successful at this stuff. Um, Well, because if you know, someone's saying, Hey, I yeah, I put, I put more pressure on the inside of the ball. It's like, well, how do you know that you do that when you release it, when it actually matters? Like you could be putting pressure in your glove. You could be putting pressure all the way through here but if you're not putting pressure when it comes off your fingertips, does it matter? I don't think that it w- like, how could it? So I think yeah, that ends I, up just kind of being like the way you set the ball in your hand. I had a major league front office guy who I won't name. He told me that never listen to pitchers about what they're doing. <laughs> well, I had a teammate and I, I was like, dude, you're very dumb. He, what he was saying was he threw a, a spike curve, a knuckle curve. And he was telling me that he used his knuckle to push the ball forward. I'm like, first of all, let's look at the orientation of your fingers first yeah, okay. here, friend. Like, you're going to push it this way? That's not the way the wall spins. The wall spins this way. You're shoving it towards. Yeah, I'm like, that literally makes no sense. So we got on iPhone, but this was 2014, like an iPhone 5. And it wasn't quite conclusive. It was to me, but to him, he's like, oh, no, it's like, it like literally makes no sense what you're, what right. you're saying. I'm very, I'm very curious to who that was. Oh, you, 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 you wouldn't have known him. There, there's a cue, you know, you give somebody a cue and it makes them do what they want to do. And that's good enough. Right. So that is, that is, that is true. So back to change-ups, and then I want to get the seam shifted awake. But um, so one of my things, and this was just happenstance when I started teaching change-ups back in 2010. So I taught myself one in college in 2005. I just like tinkered, asked around a little bit. And then I came to this grip where I have two fingers on the top, thumb on the bottom fingers doing nothing on the sides. And it helps me get on the inside of it. And I threw that all through college. It became a pretty good pitch. I threw it in pro ball. It became a very good pitch and had a lot of heavy movement. And when I started teaching full-time in the off-season, doing lessons, I realized, and I don't know if every lesson instructor does it this way, but you're like, I want to be able to give a consistent experience and teach the same things from one kid to the next and be reproducible. Just like, you know, you go to Chick-fil-A, you get the same food every time. So I'm like, you can't like there's a million you talk to kids especially five years ago it's like oh i throw this grip or this grip or this grip or this grip i'm like what does a change up do they're like well it goes straight or it goes slow does it move sometimes like it's just a crap shoot whereas if you talk about a slider or a curveball there's a dis- there's a defined spin to a curveball right like a curveball that's good it has top spin like there's no question about it you can throw it like hold it different ways but a curveball is a pitch that has top spin a slider is a pitch that has a mix of gyro and and, and top spin and with a changeup, it was just like the Wild West. It's like, I could just pick any eight different grips, and I don't really know why it goes slow. I just hope that it does. So I'm like, that's stupid. I'm like, I'm going to try to find a defined spin for my changeup so that when I teach this, it like I can just reproduce it. And 
so I did. And basically I started trying to explain how my chain up moved the way it moved. And I said, well, I think you get about 5% of the speed reduction from your grip because these fingers are just weaker. You hold it deep in your hand and then you get 5% by losing speed into spinning it on the inside. Like you pronate over the top of it a little bit early. And so you get that 5% and 5% and that's where you get your consistent, you know, change up speed reduction and your sink and your run. And that proved to be true over time. And kids will throw it. I mean, I have 10, 11, 12 year olds that'll throw this chain. I don't usually teach below 12, but they can consistently get on the inside of the ball and create that like angled tilted spin axis. And I think this is essentially the same thing that disco ball. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it was funny because over the years you started seeing a couple of big leaguers throw it that way and not because of from me, but just like they figured this out. Like King Felix was one of the first ones. His change was filthy and then Strasburg and there's a lot of guys adding it now. But I think they're figuring it out. They're like, the change-up should have a defined characteristic set, not just like, I pick a random grip and like they throw the starfish once. Like if you throw a pitch like this, it's going to maybe do something different every time. It doesn't, that's not a reliable way if you're, you know, it's as a pro pitcher, your pitches are your tools. It's like, you know, you want your tool to do this, to be sharp and ready to do the same thing every time. So anyway, I don't want to get too far sidetracked on on change-ups because Barton, you've got a bunch of slides and some stuff to share because you have a lot of really interesting um, aerodynamic stuff. So do you want to jump into seam shifted wake and kind of explain to us what that is and sure where you feel like that's going explain very slowly okay (laughs) let me just comment about the changeup though because you know as a as a baseball dad you know when when a changeup is introduced to a kid there you're trying to throw the ball slow but move your arm fast Mm -hmm. but then as you get you know it's and i'm not sure if this is a recent evolution in baseball but all of a sudden now changeup is about a very specific movement profile Mm -hmm. and uh and i think uh that's a pretty interesting evolution and it is this year in the majors, I think what's happening is either we've had an influence, which I doubt, or there's a lot more high-speed video, so we're seeing a lot of these disco balls all of a sudden, and uh, and they're, they're they're pretty interesting. <laughs> so I'm gonna try to. I have an hour presentation on seam shifted wake. It's online. If anybody's listening and wants to see it, I can send them a link. Uh, but uh, I won't give you the full hour. The idea is. Um, you know, I think a lot of people for over the years have had an idea that the seams matter. I think a lot of people think that seams make the Magnus effect bigger, and they don't. Um, they do have an effect on drag. Bigger seams give you more drag, and I think that, that had a lot to do with the home run surge. Alan and I could go around about that all day. I think he has a bit of a more nuanced view than I do. Um, but, um, but in terms of making the baseball uh, move and break, um, <clears throat> until recently, I don't think – uh, there was much acknowledgement that seems matter. Um, Bauer, Trevor Bauer, started suggesting probably about five years ago that the orientation of the ball mattered relative to its axis. That uh, how, and just to describe what I mean, here's two different orientations relative to the axis. The axis is the rod, but if you look here, um, that rod is coming out of a different point relative to that logo. That's a different orientation relative to the axis. So he was the first person that I know of that suggested that that matters. He was trying to achieve a pitch where you would see uh, part of the ball, like this part down here, that's smooth a large part of the time. Uh, I think what he was achieving was a seam effect, and he didn't know it at the time. I think uh, I think he's come around to my point of view on that. But um, um, so, uh, what do seams do? Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna share my screen here. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna try to keep this dialed back a little bit and not go totally bananas. Um, asking a professor to exercise restraint when speaking. 
Well, I'll, it, I'll jump in and I'll try. If, if there's something that I don't understand, then that's a good gateway for that other people probably don't as well. Cause I'm still on the layman side with a lot of your super technical stuff. So this will be good. So if you okay. hear me jump in, I'll just uh, ask you, probably ask you to clarify some stuff. Sure. I, I appreciate it. So I'm going to start with a golf ball and I like golf balls because they are much easier to understand than baseballs because they're the same everywhere. They have this dimple pattern. It's, it's uniform. And that golf ball is moving to the left at about 90 miles an hour. Um, we've done a measurement here that I won't get into, but it allows us to see the wake of the ball. And it's important to note here that the wake, and, and don't worry about whether it's red or blue, um, that's just showing us where the wake is. And hopefully you guys can uh, appreciate that that's what that is, ball's moving that way. I've, I've put arrows here where the wake starts. See that, that uh, you got this red stuff and it leaves the ball right there, forms the wake, same thing up here. And they're both these two arrows that are about the same point on the ball. If I spin the ball, those two arrows move. This one moves back. This ball's spinning like that. This one moves back here. That one moves forward. And the wake is now tilted down. That's Magnus effect. That's what, that's what makes your golf ball ride if you hit it well. It makes it slice if you don't hit it well. That's why a, uh, a good four-seam fastball has ride to it. It tends to stay higher than it should because of Magnus effect. This is what I don't want to talk about. This is the, this is the counterexample to uh, what I want to talk about because um, that's been understood for a very long time. But what we've learned more recently is that if you have a seam that's in a certain range of positions, it can cause that wake to form early on that side. So this is an example. This And the, the, the magic locations are near a slice through the ball that's perpendicular to the direction it's moving. So this ball is moving straight to the left, but it looks like, uh, but the wake is tilted upward, which yeah. means it's being pushed down, and that ball's not spinning at all. So uh, this isn't Magnus effect. And this is, the, the whole idea of seam-shifted wakes is causing a seam to reside in kind of the same location as the ball spins around, so you keep this wake tilted like that and push the ball in some direction. Um, uh, I didn't have enough background here to explain this but in general when you have a ball that's moving through the air you get high pressure on the front of it which i think is kind of intuitive you get low pressure on the sides and since the and the the wake is all at the same pressure and so since this low pressure up here got cut off because the because the wake formed early that means i have more low pressure on the bottom of the ball than the top that means it's being pushed down i had to think about it for a minute and so, so this ball the, so you said this ball wouldn't be spinning or no, this would have not, spin? It's not okay. spinning. And so if it spins, and if I'm, you're going to cover this later, just stop me and tell me we're going to get there. But if this ball is spinning, then does that wake form just the same or this has to, it has to maintain its orientation throughout flight? Well, there's a couple different possibilities. So let's talk about the one that I want to spend most of my time on. Say that, the, say that that ball is spinning and it's spinning kind of, kind of like this so that there's an axis that's through it vertically then, um, and I, I can make that seem still, in spite of that spin, be here most of the time. Yeah, that's, okay. That that's makes what sense. I want to talk about most of the time. Yeah, so the, the seam effect is in kind of 90 degrees from the Magnus effect. So uh, that's why the, the disco ball changeup applies there, where it's going right. to be. Push, gotcha. Imagine this is a changeup, and the axis is straight up and down. It's spinning, spinning like this. And actually, here is my, I have a disco ball changeup ball here. Here it is. So if I spin that, I'm going to try to get that in front of the camera. 
you can see that that seam up there on the top is just usually hanging out in that same spot. Yeah. Okay. And that makes I, sense. And if I throw that, say it's, it's moving that way, it's moving that way. Sorry. And I, I tilt it with some gyro so that that seam now is near the top of the ball as it's moving this way. That's what the disco ball changeup is. And this seam causes that wake to form early on the top of the ball and push the ball downward. Gotcha. So, uh, and, okay. and I think that the disco ball changeup is the easiest seam shifted wake pitch to, to understand. Um, note that if this was a changeup, like we're talking about, the Magnus force would be pushing straight into the, into the page. But the seam effect is going to push it down. Okay, so let me ask you then, if I'm a, like a Chris Sale, of course Chris Sale's not exactly sidearm, but say I'm a sidearm pitcher and I'm throwing yeah. a two-seamer, are we going to get the same exact effect? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a, uh, you're a good straight man because that's Jared Hughes. That, uh, and I want to talk about him a little bit because he's, I think his arm slots quite a bit like Chris Sale's, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. um, let me just uh, pop in here. Uh, I met Jared about... His, wonder, his photos are... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he takes a picture like this. Every so somebody had a post on Twitter, another year, another awesome picture of Jared Hughes. And that was before I, I met him. And, uh, and I didn't know about these awesome spring training pictures. But he is a sidearm guy. That's his sinker. So this is not a changeup. It's a sinker. But he throws it at such a low arm slot. It has about the same axis as a changeup. Yeah. And, um, and he is able to cause that ball to have a seam effect that pushes it downward. You can see that seam spinning around the top of the ball. It's uh, spinning something like this, and it sinks like crazy. And what's interesting about these pitches, I think you made the comment to me that sometimes somebody says, hey, nice curveball when you threw a changeup. Mm -hmm. The reason they're saying that, in my opinion, is because that ball is being forced downward. It's not falling. Traditionally, we think of a changeup as falling, but this pitch and a good disco ball changeup aren't falling they're being pushed down by the seam and that and a curveball is pushed down by magnus effect so i think we have that you know we can see that with our eyes that ball's not falling it's being you know it's being pushed so if you have a low enough arm slot yeah you can throw a sinker and i think a lot of sinkers are of this type uh, that has a seam effect that pushes it down but so well, but even then sorry go ahead bobby I was going to say, Norm, go ahead. You actually go because my question is probably going to be a little off base. Well, as this video loops through, you can still see him get a little bit to the top, which is probably going to put, like, there's a little bit of, eh, right as he hits it. Whereas if you're a, just a side or a, a sidearm or just throwing, I'm going to get off camera, I'm going to move a little bit. But if you're directly to the side of it and there's, because you can see, like, a little bit of wobble, and obviously, like, the spin visualization right there shows that bit of wobble, but, you know, when you're a lower arm slot guy, if you throw a nice, clean, like good spin axis two-seamer, it's going to have that same thing, but without that wobble. Is that going to be a difference? Because I don't feel like when you throw, you just throw a ball sidearm, it doesn't just sink like crazy. Like I can throw, like a shortstop throws the ball across the diamond and it is pretty true. So I guess my question is, how does that differ? Like what is he doing differently that gets all this sink, whereas a shortstop throws it sidearm and doesn't get that much sink? Right. There's two things. Notice that this pitch has a lot of gyro component to it. Mm -hmm. So 21 degrees, or if you prefer, I think it says 93% efficiency. So that's crucial. Uh, the other thing is that it's oriented kind of funny. It's like you said, it's not straight two seam. It's uh, the, the, these, uh, the, the ball is oriented differently in his hand. Now talking to Jared, this was nothing that he ever tried to do on purpose. Yeah. Uh, although he did realize, yeah, it works better when I do that. So I'm going to do that. 
it's only recently that he's come to understand that that's crucial. But let me show you the very, to me, this is even more exciting. This is his four-seamer. And the four-seamer gets a seam effect on the bottom of the ball from these seams, and it rides. So this is being pushed upward. So what I, what's so exciting to me about Jared Hughes is he throws these two pitches with exactly the same speed, RPM, and axis, and they are, they are forced in two opposite directions by the seams. Hmm. And that is, like I said, Tom Tango kind of shone a light on that last night on Twitter. Uh, Wait, so his, so his grip is the same on both of these? No, the grip is different. The grip's different. The, yeah. The but is, the, so when, uh, the, when you say the grip's different, so the four seam, I assume he's holding with his index and middle finger, it looks like. I don't remember. Can you go back to the changeup? Uh, it wasn't a changeup. It's a sinker. Sinker. Yeah. Yeah, here's a sinker. Okay, so all right, so the sinker and the four seam are both being thrown index finger, middle finger, dominant, different grip. Yep, different, uh, different, right, different grip. <laughs> I uh, I need to get it through my head that yeah, the way you put the ball in your hand is a grip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I call it an orientation, but yeah, that's really all it is, and um, and so. One of the fun things about working with Jared is he can put as much gyro on it as you want. I, I, I say to him, hey, could you do 80? He does 80. And, um, and so we've been able to mess around with that a bit, find that there are. The, basically, the more gyro you get, the more, as a gyro angle approaches 45 degrees, there's a lot more room to make seams do stuff for you. So um, I just recently discovered also that Joe Smith, throws a four-seamer that gets ride from seam. So he's even lower. He's actually a little bit submarine, I think. But his four-seamer rises as a result of seams. Okay, so when you say ride, just to be clear, ride to you means it... Has continues. an upward force on it. Gotcha, perfect. Even though the, there's none from Magnus, really. Yeah. In, in the case of Joe Smith, if anything, he has downward mm -hmm. Magnus force. Jared's getting a little bit of upward Magnus force, but it's overcome by the seam force. Uh, yeah. And for those so, of you out there who don't know Joe Smith, he's uh, a little bit, or is he a good amount below sidearm now? I think he's changed yeah. a little bit throughout his career, but he's been like a 14, 15 year journeyman reliever. I can't, I know he's with the Astros last I saw him, but he was maybe a little bit below sidearm. I can't remember. Last I saw him, he was a little bit below sidearm. He opted yeah. out this year, so we haven't, uh, unfortunately, we that's haven't right. been able to get him on Hawkeye to see what that's doing. Uh, as a side note, I love to tell the story. My dad, Excuse me. My dad's name's Joe Smith. Uh, Joe Smith was with the Cubs briefly. I'm a Cubs fan, so my dad made me a Joe Smith Cubs jersey. <laughs> I got to tell Joe Smith about that a while ago. He thought he thinks I have the only Joe Smith jersey out there. Nice, nice. That's interesting. <laughs> so, well, Dan, isn't that pretty common? As far as like we're talking about orientation, essentially, like that's what a lot of pitchers will. If a guy with a bad slider wants to learn from a guy with a good slider, the first thing they talk about is how he holds it. Mm -hmm. And then what he thinks about, like, how he throws it. But I would think the first thing you guys talk about is is the grip, no? Well, and so that's the interesting thing, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, Barton, is that with the other, like, there's, with the curveball, there's essentially, like, one way to throw it. Like, you put it here, your finger on the inside of the seam. You could put it the other way. It's a little uncomfortable because you have a seam going beneath your fingers. The guys don't throw two-seam curveballs very often because they look different. They show, like, a red railroad tracks. Like, when I catch a kid's two-seam curveball, I'm like, it just doesn't look like a fastball at all. It looks very strange. Um, 
But with sliders, as I asked around, because I, I tried to pick up a slider my last year, I asked eight guys. I got eight different grips. Just yeah. as far as where they put their fingers on the ball. And it doesn't seem like it mattered. The only thing that really mattered was that their fingers are together. And really, it's just like how you throw it. It almost has like nothing to do with the, with the orientation of the seams. Would you agree or disagree with that? Or you think that's a really uh, misguided thing? Would there be one way that you would say, you should hold it this way because of X? Here's my take. I'm going to tell you what pitchers think. And <laughs> I have no idea what pitchers think, obviously. But you tell me if I'm wrong. I think when a pitcher grips a ball they're usually thinking about, hey, I want to spin it as hard as I can, and ha having the seam underneath my finger is going to help me do that. That's mm -hmm. the, and, and so I think that's when they decide on a grip, that's usually their primary consideration. Uh, if you're trying to throw a seam-shifted weight pitch, I'm going to argue that um, you, you're going to be more successful if you back off of that idea a little bit because the seam-shifted weight pitch is not about spin. Spin doesn't do anything to it um, for or against it. So uh, then we, we may want the ball to have a certain orientation as it flies. So I'm going to say, hey, can you hold it like that, please? And, and uh, uh, they might say, well, why would I do that? I don't have a grip on a seam. Um, but uh, uh, that's, I think that the, that's what the revolution is going to require, is that people let go of that idea that I need a seam to hold on to in order to spin the ball. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So seam-shifted wakes are not going to apply to what pitches? Like they're not going to apply to fastballs or like four. No, they, do apply to, they apply to fastballs. Uh, you saw two from Jared just, yeah, just yeah. a minute ago. Uh, I have yet to see a curveball. I think it could be done, um, but I think a curveball is a pitch that you really probably want to focus on the spin. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've seen I've seen sinkers, four seamers, change ups, four, four seamers with a lot of gyro, change ups, yeah. um, uh, a couple different kinds of change ups, and. And then the new frontier that we haven't really gotten into yet is sliders. I think there are some possibilities there. Um, one of the issues with sliders, and I think you've kind of alluded to this, is that they're difficult to throw the same way every single time. Mm -hmm. uh, they probably don't come out of your hands super consistently. So I think that might be one of the reasons that uh, sliders are a little tougher. Um, let me, uh, I'm gonna go back to sharing my screen because I just wanna, yeah. uh, I wanna run through a, a few videos um, that I've collected up. Uh, of some some different change-ups that I, I know about. Um, let me see here. There we go. Um, this is Kyle Hendricks just recently. Interestingly, he throws his change-up two different ways. This one seems to be seam-shifted, and you could see that seam very prominently. The, the one that we focus on the most is this is uh, Scherzer, and that's his disco ball change up that drops here. I think that's Michael Augustine's video. Yeah. He's, he's the one that coined that term. Um, this is Waka from a recent game. Uh, so again, you see that seam very prominently. Um, you can see that they're gripping it different ways, but getting the same mm -hmm. at the yeah. end of the day, it's flying through the air the same way. Um, Dan Straley. Uh, this was Korean baseball and uh oops i'll hopefully replay there we go this one's really a, i think a beautiful one Drops that one like, looks or that one looks like it's basically ring finger pinky yeah and i think it's about the best i've seen uh so he had the interesting um position of being the only or the probably the most prominent american baseball player pitching 
early in the season, you know, early in, back in April. But this one I really wanted to talk about because we've, we invented a pitch we call a looper where you have a seam that's looping around the pole. And uh, it's something that we came up with just because we could do it in our pitching machine with no gyro. And this is a Korean pitcher throwing that looper. Uh, he didn't learn it from me. He came up with that completely on his own. Um, but the, that's a lot of fun that we, you know, almost anything you could think. There, there's nothing new under the sun, you know. Almost everything's been tried. And uh, so, sooner or later, some pitcher somewhere in the world is going to wander into something that works real well for that reasons pit, that may not understand. Yeah, that, loop, that, that looper pitch looked like it was mainly middle finger just swiping over the top of the baseball as he's yeah. – I mean, Dan, you obviously were a pitcher. Like, the further you get away from the index finger, I feel like the less control and feel you probably have on the ball. I mean, at least from – No, that's all know, nonsense. That's pretty much – From mean, an infielder, like when I grab the ball, like on the run, mm-hmm. and I grab the ball, if I grab it, misgrab it, like I want the ball obviously in my index and middle finger just so I can get full control, at least in what I consider full control. Yeah, but you have to think of – even if you're holding like this, the index finger is just for stability in a sense. I mean, ultimately, it's going to leave off the middle finger. Like, every pitch pretty much leaves off the middle finger. So, the middle finger... It's, it's almost long. I mean, it's significantly longer for most people, too. So, right. when you're seeing that with the changeup, it's the fact that this finger on the changeup is on the descending part of the ball. So, by the time they get there, it looks like there's only one finger, but they've been stabilized the whole way until the, the end. So, but the, so, so when you're pitching, like, are you basing everything off of your middle finger, essentially? I mean, that's where you feel everything come off. Like, when I, I think most pitchers just get a blister in the middle. Like, my middle finger would be blistered and calloused like crazy, and you feel it. And that's why if you ever go back to throwing a, a college ball, like, this is a college ball. This is a, a youth ball. But when the college balls had those big seams, like, I would go home and, like, inner squad oh, with my alma mater, they would just chew up. I'd have a blister on my middle mm-hmm. finger after – like throwing one bullpen with those things because there's just so much extra grit on uh, uh, even when even as a position guy i mean i hated throwing terrible those balls. yeah They're, and they feel they feel little... square um barton we got a question on youtube uh someone who obviously follows your research he said what was what was the estimated success rate when pitchers try throwing loopers do you think they're easier uh, do you think change-ups are the next wave because they're easier to achieve high efficiency uh well, first of all, I think uh, if you if you look at my Twitter feed, I have a um, I have a pin tweet uh, about the, with the with the, the more more cowbell guy saying more gyro uh, because I think seam shifted wake is really going to be about having inefficient pitches and one of the unfortunate language problems is trying to explain to somebody that an inefficient pitch can be better and and uh, so when you talk about seam shifted wakes, I think usually um, uh, a more gyro helps. So the looper was something that we came up with because we needed to be able to test an efficient pitch because we were throwing them with the machine and it could only throw 100% efficiency. So a looper is a rare orientation that works with no gyro. Um, so going back to the question, if I, if I understood, I hopefully I understood correctly. Um, we're not looking for efficient pitches most of the time. I think you might have heard me say that if you're trying to throw a looper, you do want it to be efficient. And, uh, and the cool thing about that, this is something I was talking about quite a lot a while ago. Um, let me see. Here's my – I have a looper ball. This is my looper ball. And so uh, if you see that, this is, this is the seam looping around that pole. And I would talk about the fact that if you wanted to throw a looper four seam, and normally I'd grip my four seam like this, and hopefully Dan's not cringing because I'm gripping it wrong. 
but then if you wanted to throw a looper, now I need to get that axis uh, so that it's um, going to spin that way. So I just take my normal form seam grip and a normal form seam grip, and then I just adjust it so that that rod comes out straight. And then the cool thing about that, and I still think this is a potential cool thing about that, is I could put the loop on one side or I could put it on the other side. That's going to force the ball in two opposite directions for the same pitch. So um, that's an exciting possibility. And one of the questions that comes up with all the seam shifted wake stuff, um, the real brass tacks questions, does this help you get a hitter out? Uh, I was talking to, to, to somebody about this last night, and he said, well, I think if you could make it do opposite things to the same pitch, then yeah, it would help you get a hitter out. And, and um, uh, so that's what Hughes is doing. He's got opposite effects on the same pitch, and I think the looper could do that too. And I have no idea if I answered that question or not. <laughs> well, it, it, I think he was asking how good are pitchers at throwing it? Like if oh. they tried, if they tried to do this, do they throw it correctly 15% of the time or? Yeah. I have a, I have a video of Dan Arnsma who's now with the a coach for the Blue Jays. Um, mm -hmm. I visited them in March and he stepped out on the, in the bullpen and, and about 10 minutes later he was throwing it. Uh, and the way that we did it, this was an idea that Trevor Bauer gave us. Um, you draw a line on the ball like that where you want it to spin and if, if it works correctly as it flies, you just see that line sitting straight. And it's a good tool. Um, so basically what I did was put a dot where the rod comes out of my ball, and then I drew a circle around that. Hmm. And if you do that, um, it doesn't take long for a pitcher to figure out, okay, I normally would put my fingers here. I'm going to need to put them more like that, and then I'm going to get that, that spinning accurately. So I think in the case of a looper, um, which I'm not necessarily advocating. It's, it's not very hard to get to learn how to do that as a fastball and to put it on either side of the ball. And what distinction, so what does the looper do that the disco ball changeup doesn't? Uh, it doesn't do anything. It's a, it's a less effective version of the disco ball. So uh, let me see if I can explain this. Um, let me get my, my correct so if, baseball so if, it's, so if it's less effective, it's just maybe easier to throw, like in what, if you could there choose is, either, why would you choose a looper or would you not? You would choose a looper because you throw the, the ball efficiently. Okay. So and that, that tends to be a characteristic of a certain pitcher. Some people can manipulate it, but uh, from what I've seen, most people have a natural tendency to throw the ball efficiently or less efficiently. If you throw the ball less efficiently, um, then, uh, then I would go with more of a disco ball. If you throw it efficiently, I would go with more of a looper. And, and what do you mean exactly people, by efficiently? Um, less more efficiently means less gyro with okay. the axis moving straight as opposed to tilted. Okay. Um, and so if you look at a lot of the videos I just showed, you'll see that a lot of those have a very tilted axis. And I think that, and what the reason, the reason that that is helpful is if you look, uh, the, let me see here, this baseball, if I'm throwing a looper, the rod is straight up and down. If I'm throwing a disco ball change up, the rod is tilted and the idea is in both cases, I'm sorry, it'd be tilted like this. The idea in both cases is to get that seam that's on the top of the ball near the top of the ball. This one's there automatically because I've, um, I've, got, that, uh, I've got that certain orientation. This one requires some gyro to get it there. But what that does is in, in this case, it's a very narrow range of the seam that's having an effect. And in this case, it's a much wider range of the seam. So it's covering more of the baseball. And so it has more force. So I think that the, 
I don't know if I clarified anything or not, but I think the disco ball changeup has more of the scene causing an effect than the looper does. And okay. so I think it gets more force as a result. So going back to the throwing a fastball as a looper, um, so you could essentially like set that orientation, throw it, and it would just, what, what do you feel like the action would look like? I mean, have you seen this happen? Like, have you been able to actually have yeah, someone we, throw it like that? Like, what does it do? Uh, well, the, the issue with having a human being throw it is it's very difficult to tell if anything happened. Our tests in the lab say you get five inches of break out of it. Um, if you is have that just straight, it, straight lateral or is it a uh, combination or what? If I throw it like this, it would be that way and down. <laughs> so it's at a 45 degree angle. Uh, we're not sure why. Um, I, I planned on that way. I don't know where the down comes from yet. Uh, and that five I, inches, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that five inches, is that happening over, like, how how far of a distance? Immediately, like, is it a... Over 60. Over the whole, okay. Yeah. So, um, and my point was that if you have a, a if you're, if you're generating five inches of extra break and you're trying to see that with your eye, I don't think you can really see it. We can see it in the lab because my, my machine throws the ball the same way every single time. So I can put the ball in in two different orientations and I can see the five inches difference. Uh, so one of, the, one of the big challenges, uh, especially from a, like a pitching coach point of view, is detecting this. And I think we've developed some ways to do that. But uh, back when I was visiting teams back in March, we didn't have them. So it was hard to tell when it was working. Yeah, go back to the, the two pitches I showed you that Jared threw. How do you know that he didn't just throw that four seam higher? Um, mm -hmm. I, I can, I actually have ways of tracking his baseball and I can see that he threw those two pitches at the same trajectory initially. Uh, and, and so I know that that break is coming from seams, but that's a hard gotcha. thing. Uh, that's a hard thing to detect. Rap Soto can't tell you that Trackman can't tell you that. So yeah. uh, that's, yeah. that's one of the big challenges. And I want to cut to that video because you showed the one disco ball chain up and the other one that was like, or, or maybe that was the Laminar, that was the Laminar Express video that you have. But so I want to talk about the difference between that. But before I do, have you ever set up behind home plate for where your cannon is shooting and watched it with your eyes as from a catcher's point of view? I don't know that I have. Uh, it's, I it's feel like you need to do, I feel like you need to do that. I mean, because honestly, so, and, and I'm not alone in that lots of pitching coaches play catch with their, you know, their pitching lessons, yeah. their clients, all I that stuff. That, I know that view is different. And, and, and Well, yeah. And I think like, for example, so as I'm trying to picture like this looper fastball, like it goes five, five and five, you know, whatever, five inches to the right and five inches down. Then the question is, is it a good, like terrifying Mariano Rivera kind of cut? like that's late and scary or is it just like it's it meandered across the zone over the whole course of the oh. way right whereas your data might be able to say that it broke but maybe it's like eh, that's kind of a sloppy slow moving pitch that's not really going to get anyone out and you yeah, might let me, you, be able to, you reminded me about something i forgot to say that's really important about the disco ball changeup. um so it's flying that way right and the the key is that this seam is near a uh, near the location of a slice through the middle of the ball mm -hmm. that's perpendicular to the direction it's moving. So if the ball is moving straight this way, that line is straight up and down. And so say that I threw it like this. Uh, what I'm trying to show you is that that seam is not in that location. But now as the ball starts to fall, that this line is going to tilt this way because mm. the direction of the ball is changing. And so suddenly that seam could be doing something where it wasn't initially. And I think that that's what makes the disco ball change up such an awesome pitch 
is it because it has late break or it has that potential? So all this data that we have on it seems to say it's being forced downward. I think it's being forced downward suddenly at the end. And mm. that's why change-ups, I think, for seam-shifted weight pitches are so exciting um, because the gravity can cause the effect to kick in. Well, now you've... So most of these disco ball change-ups are a lot faster than traditional change-ups. I mean, would you agree? Yeah. I mean, they're like... And this is the same with mine. It was the same with the ones that I, that I taught to kids where they're like, hey, I'm throwing 60 this changeup is 55, We're like, Dan, that's not slow enough. I'm like, it's slow enough when you consider the whole pitch. It's not just that it's slow. It's the fact that it also bears down and into a righty. It's also that it, it sinks a lot too, right? There's all, it's the, and that's why, so my friend who's a scout was talking about this and he pitched in the major leagues and he was saying, yeah, like my whole life I was taught that a changeup just needs to go slower. But now with TrackMan, it's grading out all the different qualities of the pitch and they're, yeah. they're basically just telling us that no, Speed is just one thing that even if it's a little bit harder, like it's closer to your fastball speed, the fact that it has all this extra movement makes that pitch as a whole a better quality pitch to get hitters out with is, is basically yeah, what's happened. And, so, Frankie um, has one that's faster than his fastball, right? So that, that kind of blew up the whole idea that it's, <laughs> yeah. it's slower, right? But I guess my point was that – so when I talked to Alan before, he was talking about how cutters the, – the idea of late break is essentially less break. So a cutter – is following the fastball path longer before it deviates from it. Whereas a big, slow, loopy curveball has to deviate in trajectory a lot earlier, right? right. And so I wonder, I'm wondering out loud, and you can, um, interesting your, your opinion of it, but is it the fact, is it partly the fact that these disco ball changeups are significantly faster compared? They're almost like the same speed differentials as a slider. So is the fact that it seems like sharper, later breaking, is it really just a, a product of maybe the velocity and the speed differential? Or is there more to it than that? just that? Yeah, I, I don't know if I can answer that. But the, the only one that I'm really tuned into is Strasburg. He throws at about 88 miles an hour. He throws his fastball pretty hard. I'm not sure. It's probably like 95, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so, he's consistently 93 to 96 these days. But I definitely agree that most of the disco balls we look at are pretty hard. Um, an exception would be Hendricks, who's probably throwing that 75 miles an hour. So I don't think they need to be hard mm -hmm. for it to work. Um, but to getting back to the late break idea, the late break that you get from a cutter, um, which Alan calls less break, is coming from the gyro component and, and the gyro component becoming non-gyro. So one of the funny things about gyro is that if you start with some gyro spin, if I start with a baseball that's spinning like a bullet, as it falls, that becomes non-gyro spin. So that's that's a maybe a little mm. bit mind-boggling, but no, that's, yeah, that's that where that sense. notion of, of late break comes from is that as the ball falls, now some of that component kicks in where it wasn't doing anything before. That's an example gotcha. of Magnus causing late break. Um, the disco ball changeup stuff I'm talking about is seam shifted weight causing late break. I think both are possible. And I think, um, I think it's a fact that if you can get the ball to move a half an inch in the last five feet, that's quite a bit more important than getting it to move 15 inches over 60 feet. Can we, uh, since we've referenced Magnus a bunch and I, I would explain, you know, when I was teaching a curveball to a kid, I'd explain the, the Magnus effect, and I'd, try, I'd use the example of an airplane. Could you, again, 12 years old, 8 years old, can you give us your engineer's ex explanation of, of Magnus and how it affects fastballs and curveballs? Yeah, I have a really great video for this, um, and I'm trying to think of where I can grab onto it quickly. Um, I have it, and I, I don't want to go plowing through all my uh, 
I mean, I mean, uh, well, I'll, I'll ramble. I'll ramble while you're uh, while you're looking for it. Okay. But, um, I, I, have you ever seen the video of somebody dropping a basketball off of some huge dam? I haven't, but that sounds okay. cool. Yeah, no, it is really cool. Um, and I'll find it for you. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I used the, the, I basically explained to kids that it's kind of the opposite of the way airplanes take off. Like their teardrop shaped wing as they accelerate creates high pressure underneath that pushes the plane up. And it's kind of, that's how a four seamer is a little bit. And then with curveballs, it's the opposite of that, that you create this high pressure zone that shoves the ball down as it, as it flies. And that's why they want to get their, um, forward direction of spin. They want to get their top spin. But well, sorry, let me, uh, a little, little me smooth, a little smooth jazz. Yeah. Sorry. This, uh, this had some, uh, background music to it. Uh, I got that turned off now. Um, let me, yeah, let me show you this demo. Cause I, I think that this is a really good way to show it. Um, and these guys, uh, yeah, I'm sharing now, right? These, yeah, I'm, there it is. Yep. Okay. So they take this basketball and they just spin it and drop it off at dams. So wow. as it, yeah. And you That's see that crazy. Yeah. So it's gaining speed and that's why it starts to get more and more Magnus effect as it goes. But, but the other thing that's interesting is that the, um, and that this note here is really helpful for understanding it. Think about the direction that the front of the ball is moving and the front of the ball, what the front of the ball is depends on which direction the ball is heading. Right? So if you yeah. think about a fastball, I'm going to go back to the fastball. Front of the ball is moving that way. Curveball, the front of the ball is moving that way. Oh, that's a great way to, to, to break it down. That's that, super simple. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, not, that's not how it works, but that's what it does. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and I think, I think if I'm trying to teach a pitcher, I would tell them what it does rather than how it works. Yeah. So we've well, got a question on Periscope from Alan. Alan asks, how does the rubbing mud affect baseball aerodynamics? Have you done anything where the where there's anything on the ball? Yeah, so we, we did one test of that, and so I have one data point, and it said nothing, uh, or mostly nothing. So when, when we rubbed, we bought some mud, and we rubbed it on a baseball, um, and we did notice at least two days later the seams of the baseball were a little higher than before we rubbed the mud on it. But when we tested that baseball, we did not find anything different about the way it, it behaved. Obviously, that has, a, I think, a big impact on the pitcher's release. You know, it makes the leather feel different. So I, I think it has a biomechanics effect, but I think in terms of aerodynamics, it's not much. Now, all that said, um, Rob Arthur had some really interesting comments on baseball prospectus recently where he thinks that pine tar that's left on baseball does have an effect on their aerodynamics. And that's something I'm really curious about. Hmm. 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 So I want to shift to cutters a little bit. So we've, we've talked a bunch about cutters and, this is hard to figure out for a number of reasons. Number one, very few pitchers outside of like, there's not a lot of data. Like you can't find a lot of, I mean, obviously there's MLB data, but you can't find on a typical high school field, anyone that throws a cutter. That's good. You can't throw a youth kid that throws a cutter. That's like proper, I would say. And, and not many coaches through it. It's a very rare pitch, especially five, 10 years ago for everyone. Who's like a coach today. Who's retired very tiny percentage of the population ever threw a cutter. Like it's, I think it's gaining popularity now where in 10 more years, there'll be a lot more coaches that threw it and could teach it. But right now it's kind of an enigma. I only had one guy who was a teammate who threw a good one in the Mets organization. He taught me mine 
And I'll share, because we, we've talked about this privately, but we've kind of talked about this in Alan's thing, but my understanding of it, which could be, certainly could be wrong, was that basically you're just essentially throwing a four-seamer that you've tilted slightly upon release. So you've tilted it, so it's flying straight, but it's tilted with four-seam spin slightly off straight. But right, you think so there's right. more of a, so, yeah, so exactly that. Mm -hmm. You're trying to throw it like that, but what you did was <laughs> a little bit of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that makes it gyro. Is that correct? It can't. That's right. I mean, yeah. yeah. Anytime that, so, that rod isn't straight, anytime I tilt that rod this way or that way, that's gyro. So let me share the video that I, I shared with, um, with Barton. And this was, a, this was, it, well, what was interesting is you said this was, a, you're like nice four seamer. I was like, I'm pretty sure this was a cutter. So this was a guy I got on video. There's his release and it'll be, that's hard to tell. That looks like a four seamer, but it was, he threw all cutters that night. Right. Um, and I think you can see that that left side of the ball is closer to home plate than the right side of the ball. Mm -hmm. And I, to me, that's a, that's what makes it a cutter. And yeah, I missed it when you showed it to me the first time, but if you look well, carefully, I think you yeah. can see that that ball is uh -huh. you know, a little bit like that. Yeah. And so that makes sense. So what, so I guess, would you say that we, you and I were kind of saying the same thing where exactly. because it's tilted, that's, that's where you were saying there's gyro. But to me, I like, wasn't even thinking that that's gyro. That's just like the ball's tilted, but yeah, no, I think cutters have gyro. So I once posed the question, I think you picked up on it as cut and gyro, the same thing. Um, I, I, I think a cutter has a gyro component to it. Whereas maybe I think a, a pitcher that has a cutter and a four seamer, they're basically changing the amount of gyro they put on that. Four seamers mm -hmm. ideally has very little because you want all that magnus effect pushing the ball up. Um, but uh, and then the cutter, I, I guess at least part of it is that the batter is expecting that to have the ride and it doesn't. That's one thing it yeah. does to the batter. The other is that it might have a little bit of sideways movement too, and mm -hmm. that movement might happen late. Well, and so you shared a, a, a video of your son who's, you said your son's 13, right? And he was throwing one that had a lot of bullet spin, like a lot of gyro spin, where he clearly got way on the side of it. Yep. And what, what's really interesting about all this stuff, because I, I see cutters being taught more, or you'll see it around Twitter or on forums or on YouTube, you know, like dad's like, yeah, my kid, my kid's 12 and he throws a cutter. I'm like, the cutter isn't, it, it, it's not a suitable, they think, I think a lot of people think that it's a suitable corollary to the sinker, essentially, like, oh, the sinker just goes this way, so why can't I throw a fastball that goes that way? Like, same, same exactly, like, same, um, you know, not effect, but the same use, right? Just a fastball that's not straight. But what you and I were chatting about is that the, um, the cutter is really hard to throw properly, where, and, and what's, what's really funny is, when if you want to get a kid to accidentally throw a cutter, the best way to do it is to give him a two seamer, to give him a two seam grip. I see more kids throw, and I'll see it coming at me, and it'll just go, Rank, which is kind of scary. Sometimes I'll have an eleven year old throw an accidental cutter that's kind of frightening because it just takes a weird jagged turn. They'll never be able to do it that way again. Um, why would you think? I've got a lot of other questions about the cutter, but why would you think a two seam grip will make kids accidentally cut it? Oof, I don't, any any I don't, theories? Any theories? No, I don't have any, but I know a, a different way to get a kid to throw a cutter. Uh, this is what happened to my son, and, and Jared Hughes is the one that straightened us out on it. It's when the pitching distance got bigger, and he feels like he has to kind of loft the ball a little bit. All of a sudden, hands coming off the side. Yeah. So um, he, he's, he told him, hey, you mean, you know, don't, uh, don't loft the ball, drive over the front leg, and it disappeared like that. Uh, I was amazed. 
and we were talking about technology before. I had a diamond kinetics ball. Um, we took, I went down a piece of grass, um, listened to Jared's suggestion, and the, the cut or the gyro disappeared immediately. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and we're about to, we're now shifting from 55 feet to 60. So I'm Big really difference. curious if some of his teammates are going to have that happen again. And I, I have high-speed video of some of his teammates, and I can see that some of them are doing the same thing. So yeah. I, don't, I, I don't know why a two-seamer would do that. Um, for some reason, my kid would grip his two-seamer with his thumb under the ball, and his four-seamer, he, he would tuck it. And, and I think that that'll generate gyro, mm -hmm. especially if you don't get right underneath there, right? Yeah. Well, good. Well, one of, my, ahead, just, to, just to touch on Dan's point is that uh, Zach Britton, when I – my first year was Zach Britton's second year of professional baseball as my roommate, and hearing him talk about how he's got a notoriously very, very good sinker, lefty sinker, 97 to 99 normally. Um, but how he learned how to throw that sinker was someone was teaching him how to throw a cutter. And he started throwing it how – uh, Calvin Maduro, who was one of the Orioles coaches, told him, throw it like this, this is a cutter. And the ball just kept heavy sink, heavy sink. And Calvin Maduro, I guess, just said, he's like, I don't know what you're doing, but just keep doing that because that's a good pitch. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that's just, I mean, maybe it's just, a, you know, how everyone's interpreting things differently, but the orientation of what he was doing was causing that heavy sink. So I, I hesitate thinking. to say this because I'm so I'm so ignorant on the topic, but I think if you want a sinker, it's kind of natural to put pad gyro because then the ball doesn't carry. And yeah. I, I've gotten to the point where I can go to a kid's baseball game and with a radar and I can tell how much efficiency the fastballs have because of how much hump they have them. If I see something that's coming down quite a bit, but it says it's 60 miles an hour, I know the kid threw it inefficiently. So it doesn't mm -hmm. have any carry to it. And that's basic. You could do that on purpose. But um, yeah. I got all excited when I realized that Sam was throwing a cutter by accident. And we went and got on a rap soto and I sent the report to another pitching friend. And he said, don't do that. <laughs> that's not going to do him any good. And yeah. I see the point now. Well, and, and if, you, if we go back to that video that I was just sharing, I mean, think of the dexterity. And this was my bigger point. Like young kids are struggling just to throw strikes, right? Right. Yeah. And, and then you're trying to talk about the dexterity to tilt the ball a handful of degrees. So when I tried to learn this pitch, it was in 2014. I was coming off of Tommy, my second Tommy John surgery, and I couldn't throw my curveball for spit. I couldn't throw my changeup very well. I, I personally had a really tough time after both of my elbow surgeries finding my off-speed stuff. It's like I had one season to get myself back throwing hard and like finding the zone, and then another season to find my off-speed stuff. So in desperation that I couldn't throw much for a strike to be on my fastball and I was kind of getting by because I threw hard, I need a second pitch. So I'm like, someone help me. They're like, throw a cutter. I'm like, okay. So I like just was jumped into it in, just throwing into a game. I was just like learning it on the fly, hoping I didn't get killed and get released. And it was super difficult because these tiny variations in where you release it meant your, your cutter either didn't cut at all or it became a slider or it backed up. And you're like, good grief, I can throw a curveball not perfect and it's still a curveball. Like it still curves a lot, right? It's just not my best version. Same thing with a slider, same thing with a changeup. With a cutter, it's like, it's almost a zero sum pitch, like yes or no. Like did it cut or did it not cut at all? And when it doesn't cut, you just threw an 87 mile per hour fastball down the middle. Right. And that's really dangerous. And you're, you're lucky when they back up because then they kind of go into the guy and they're like, oh, what was that? And they don't swing. Um, so that's what the problem is like, 
I had good body control. There were a lot of things that kept me from being better than I was, but I had really good like connection with my fingers and my release and like understanding what was going on when I, I kind of like a, like a photograph of each pitch. I could feel like where it was and how I released it. It's not to say I could always fix it, but um, then to ask a kid to do that, you know, a 12 year old that's walking five, six guys in yeah. for nine innings. It's like that, that's just way beyond their skill set. Um, where two seamers can sometimes work because if they throw a two seam grip and it just does something great, but that also isn't the case for most kids either. A lot of kids throw f- dead straight two seamers. And I think that makes sense considering what you said, whereas if you don't have some, something gyro. happening to it, it's just going to go dead straight. Right. Yeah. But a lot of kids do naturally throw a lot of gyro, like we've been saying. That's so that's uh, true. Mine, mine's one of them. So I tell them, yeah, you know, I, I would mix that two seamer in there once in a while. It's going to move a little differently. Mm-hmm. Can you jump to that video you have of the uh, of the Laminar Express? Because I want to talk about that. That's a really interesting topic sure. that I think can have um, some context. You're talking about the Stroman. Um, the Stroman, and I couldn't tell who the other guy was in there. Yeah. Bauer. Yeah. Um, and, the, yeah, it's an interesting topic, too, because um, I spoke to Bauer about this, and this is something – this is a theory I have, uh, and it's a common refrain I hear from people is that this happens when they're not well, when, th- when something's off. So that's Stroman on the left, um, Bauer on the right. They're both throwing a two-seamer. Um, you can see the difference in the action of these two-seamers, and you can see that Bauer's pitch has that prominent seam that's up there on the top left. To me, this laminar express is almost the same thing as a disco ball with a different axis. Mm-hmm. It's just it's, it's more, you know, the axis more like this instead of straight up and down. And, uh, but the, I use the same baseball to demonstrate it. And, uh, so, but what Trevor told me about this particular day in Toronto is that he was sick. He had the flu. Um, that's his back when and people still went to work when they had the flu, which yeah. I'm sure is over now. But, uh, um, and, and that this was happening all day, but he is, uh, he struggles to repeat it. And I think that what's happening is he's throwing more gyro than normal. And all of a sudden he gets this and, it's not natural to think I want more gyro. And, uh, and so people tend to wander back away from it. Um, yeah. So, so I wanted ahead. to share my, so when I initially looked at this, comparing these two, my first reaction is like, you can't really compare these two because when you look at Stroman's release, you can see how much on more on top of the ball he is. Like he's actually forcing it down the zone and that's going to always change it. Whereas Bauer looks like this one was when he pushed, and the fact that he was sick, maybe he was pushing more than normal. Like you fly open a little bit, your arm drags just, just a tiny amount, and then the ball tends to go up, and that's what happens to it. So I imagine if Stroman had been behind one, it might look very, very similar to this one. Um, it could be. Where I think it's like, this is like, it's a good one on the left and an error, even though they're different. Like that one's a good one, that one's an error, and they, they just tend to run that way. Right. Look at the catcher. One catcher yeah. mm-hmm. nails it, Execution. the other one is very, very surprised by what's happening, right? Yeah, which and that's an interesting effect because the the change up, like, you know, I guess we could probably call my chain up that I threw based on what I've heard from you is was a disco ball. And when I missed with my change up, when this was a nice fail safe compared to like other types of pitches. So if you throw a, a crappy curveball, it'll hang up in the middle of the zone, kind of. Curveballs are nicer because when you throw a really bad one, like you're behind it it'll be a little bit above the zone where they won't swing. Um, it's only like that middle ground where you throw a kind of okay curveball, but it still like breaks enough to be in the strike zone where you really get hurt. 
Whereas bad sliders kind of always exist in the strike zone. So you always get hurt with bad sliders. Um, but bad changeups in previous times would just be like, if you threw it chest high, it's just going to stay chest high in the middle of the zone. You get killed. Whereas with the disco ball one, what happens typically is if you're behind it and you hang it, quote unquote, it hunts a right-handed hitter like this one in this Laminar Express video. I threw so many chain-ups where I'm like, oh, that one sucked. But then it's up, and the, it just like almost hits yeah. the guy because it bears in on like this. And it's like, oh, that's great. When I throw a bad one, I'm safe. When I throw a good one, it's out of the zone. Um, and it's actually hard to find the middle ground where you throw it at like the catcher's shoulder, and it comes in for a called strike. That's, that was the hardest one for me to try to control, which I wonder um, – you don't have to use it as much that way. But anyway, I, I thought this, this comparison was really interesting because when you start to impart that gyro spin and that side spin to it, it gives you this fail safe where the ball just, it hunts a hitter or goes out of the zone. Like he would never want to nice. swing at that. Yeah. Right. It's an interesting side effect where that's something also maybe to, to consider in pitch design. The future is not only, where what is it, <laughs> yeah, not only what, what does it look like when it's effective, but can we throw on that's less, ineffective also that's pretty yeah. an interesting idea well it's um, kind of like when it when a it's like a curve when so when a pitch backs up on you i mean the hitter if i recognize it i expect it to do something like i expect it to do what it normally does so it's almost more not i want to say it's it's more effective but it's sometimes it's really effective to have a pitch back up on you when the hitter recognizes it and he's like he's locked in on it Oh, the curveball backed up. It didn't actually curve. It stayed up, and you swing right underneath it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, at the end of the day, what you want is something they don't expect, right? A, a hitter feels like over time that they know what the pitch is going to do, and if it's consistent, then they're, they're going to be right about that. And if something inconsistent happens, then they're, they're going to swing under or whatever. Yeah. So basically, I think what we have here is another tool to – make the ball do something different. And uh, I, I feel like it's got a lot of potential because hitters are used to looking at spin to try to figure out what the ball is going to do. And this is independent of that. So uh, uh, I think it can be very confusing. And I think the reason it hasn't been used more than it is, is because it does require more gyro than most people normally do. And when they get it happening, it's because they have more gyro than they normally do. And they don't normally try to return to that. So uh, one other comment I'd make about these two seamers is uh, um, it's, it's a pretty easy thing to do with Hawkeye data, and I've seen it done, where you um, make a plot of the movement of the ball versus what, the movement, what movement would you expect based on its axis in a Magnus model. You put those two things on a plot, and a, horizontal, or a diagonal line means nothing happened. It's a normal pitch. I've seen that, and, and what you see in the major leagues right now is a lot of the two-seamers are very far off that line. And uh, I think that's because of these effects. And it means a lot of guys are throwing this laminar express whether they know it or not. It's an so interesting can, name. Can, can you explain uh, the difference between these two, and can you explain what a laminar express means, like what that is? Barton, well, before, you, before you do that, Barton, I got to run. Coach a, I'm going to coach a game, and I'm going to try and coach some of this stuff to some of these kids. Yeah, this was interesting. I'm gonna. I'll be listening to the rest of it. I'll probably comment on the on the Periscope just to yeah. <laughs> chime in some more. Send but. us your comments, Robert. <laughs> Thanks, Barton. Appreciate it. So the the term laminar express was coined by Trevor Bauer and Kyle Bodie. I think um, I actually have a 
a paper that's um, hopefully going to get a journal paper that's going to be accepted soon. And I managed to squeeze um, Bauer's quote into it about him and Bodhi coming up with that term. And they they had this notion that um, well, so you can see that there's a smooth side of this ball. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, their notion was the opposite side of the ball at, from the if you imagine the catcher is looking at the in, in this view the right hand side of the ball it looks smooth to him. And that he thought that that causes the flow on one side of the ball to be laminar, which would make it wake, form a wake differently than the turbulent side. Um, uh, we concluded that it's the seam on the opposite side that's actually doing this. But um, uh, that's where the term comes from. And like I said, I would think of this as just the same thing as a, a disco ball changeup. If you tilt your head counterclockwise as you watch this video on the right, it looks like a disco ball changeup, right? And the disco ball yeah. changeup would go down, which is now, if you tilt your head to the right, it's going down, right? Does that so, make any sense? Yeah, I, so, so this one looks, like the laminar express on the right looks, to me, almost like the way a two-seamer would look if it's released pretty clean with like a good spin axis. Because you get, like you said, you can see those big smooth sides on both sides, but it's also, is that tilted more than his normal arm, arm angle? Like, is that part of the uh, component here? I'm not sure about that, but let me talk to your first point. So this is a two seam. Mm -hmm. And this is a laminar express ball or a disco ball changeup. You can see they're not quite the same. Yeah, so, so it you're has seeing more one, tilt. You're seeing one seam and not the other. So if, you, if I spin a two seamer, those seams look kind of blurry. Yeah. If I spin this laminar express ball, which is just a little bit oriented a little bit differently, you see the one on this side, but not that side. And it's funny, gotcha. the, kid that, the, the guy that teaches my kid to pitch, I got into an argument with him uh, a year and a half ago. I told him two seamers and four seamers are the same thing. And he said, no, if you have that two seamer where one seam is solid and the other one's wiggly, they're different. And I had a, I just recently told him, boy, I remembered that comment. And that's exactly what this pitch is on the screen here. It's a two seamer, but it's, it's a little tilted compared to that. Gotcha. Um, and then, because I'm watching that go. So is this something, you said this has fallen out of favor with them. Is that right? That he doesn't uh, really throw this anymore or did I, I misinterpret well, that? I, I think he might be back to it, but um, about six months ago, he told me that he was never really able to harness it very well. And um, so if you watch him these days, he's, he's all about his slider and, uh, and uh, I think this year a curveball. So um, it's not as important to him as it once was. Uh, yeah. That said, at the same time, I'm finding out it's important. Like Soroka um, and uh, maybe Dustin May and guys like that that throw that real hard two-seamer, I think a lot of them are doing this. Gotcha. Yeah, so, I mean, if a, if a guy was saying, hey, coach, should I throw my two-seamer slash sinker like Stroman or like the Laminar Express, is there one that's better or is it just what's better for that person? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't see any downside to, the, to what's happening on the right side of the screen if you can do it repeatedly. If it's going to take mm -hmm. off like that sometimes and not others, uh, maybe that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, but but as, as Bobby was saying just a minute ago, or maybe it was you, it's nice when it takes off in a way that's uh, never going to hurt fail you. Fail-safe, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Unless the catcher misses it. Yeah, and I guess that's a, that's a question for pitching coaches in general and pitchers in general, because I don't know that I know the answer even for myself, but the question is, at what percentage do you have to throw it properly to say this is a pitch that I can like legitimately use? Yeah, you know, I, so. think, 
I think a lot of it, on a pitch like that, a lot of it comes down to, can you repeat your gyro component? Mm-hmm. And uh, some, I think some people can do that. I think if you're thinking about trying to use seam shifted weight pitches, that's an important question for you to ask yourself. Can I throw it with the same amount of gyro every time? Yeah. Well, and, that, and that's, and that's the other question is, is what does every time mean? Because yeah. it almost certainly doesn't mean hundred percent of the time. Is it like eight out of 10, they're pretty good. And then the other two, two out of 10, they're, you know, 20% worse. And the, I don't know, because it's always going to be a continuum. Like no one's, even if you throw 10 curveballs that are pretty good. And this is why you really need good, uh, a good catcher or someone who really knows you when you're playing catch as a, at all ages as a pitcher, because, for me, towards the end of my career, I, I threw with my business partner. He was a catcher. Uh, I throw 10 curveballs that are all like pretty similarly shaped, pretty similar in speed. I can't personally tell which one's better. Um, and I'd have to ask him, like, which one? I, like, I, I can feel a little difference between all of them. I can't see much visual difference. So help me, which one am I trying to actually repeat? And even then, like you've thrown 20,000, 30, I don't know, so many pitches of the same type at that point in your life you're still trying to fight for what's consistent. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about with cutters with cutters. If like with curveballs, there's a variation like of quality all the way up the spectrum. And you might be able to punch out big league hitters as long as they're eight out of 10 quality for you. You know, for if Scherzer throws his curveball eight out of 10, he still gets his punch out. doesn't matter if it's his best one, as long as it's at least eight out of 10, whatever. Right. Whereas with a cutter, eight out of 10 might means it doesn't cut. Yeah. <laughs> it's like oops you know same with the laminar express or whatever and i think that's where that whole question of like what's acceptable error range i don't know because like if, if i look back at my own experience i was probably throwing good cutters at my best 60 70 percent of the time and then hoping the three bad ones didn't get destroyed <laughs> you know and that's a kind of a scary it's kind of a scary thing where if you look at kenley jansen his cutters cut probably nine out of 10 times or more, you know? Yeah, I and think, and I think his are seem shit to wake, by the way. I think he's a, he's a good example of that. Are they? But let me talk, let me speak to learning this stuff a minute. Cause it seems like a lot yeah. of what you, you want to talk about. So I have a, um, a, I guess I would say a colleague or a friend, um, that I haven't talked about yet. And I think he's in this presentation you watched. His name's Connor Hinchcliffe and he's a, he's in the, um, Philly system. And this is, this is a pitch from six months ago. Uh, that uh, his changeup, and he showed me that, and I said, you know, I think we could turn that into the to the disco ball, and uh, this is what he's been doing recently, and he was able to learn this in just a couple couple months, and I can track that, and I can confirm that, yeah, that is being pushed downward; it's not mm-hmm. falling under gravity. So, uh, and he's able to do this pretty consistently now, and he's able to tell for himself when it happened and when it didn't, and. And what he one comment he makes is that when it works well, his catcher gets thumbed a lot. And I think this mm-hmm. might be an example of it. No, that one's not. But no. uh, um, there's quite often you'll see the catcher just not really getting it where he wanted to, and uh, um, that's when you know it works. So he's uh, that the interesting thing about working with him is um, that he's been he, he gives me feedback on how well do can I learn this and how well can I repeat this. I think mm-hmm. that the results in that pitch are really good. So if you go back and look at my predictions for seam shift awakes in 2020, I say that the world is going to be lousy with seam, uh, disco ball changeups because I, I think it's not a super terribly hard pitch to learn. Yeah. Like we've been talking about, if you screw it up, it's not too bad. Um, and, and, and so I think that that's one that just about everybody ought to be doing. 
Yeah, well, I, I, I agree. Because like I said, since I started teaching the one that I threw, which I didn't have like a label on it, you, you just I started to see more and more of them in the big leagues every year. Just that, just heavy sink and run. And the thing that I think is, is interesting, and I'm curious if you found this uh, just like looking through data, is so even if you throw it one way, it's going to change as it interacts with your location. So for me, I never threw a change up to the glove side of the plate. Just didn't bother because it basically the farther you go to your glove side, the more that pitch will flatten out. So you might only get vertical break as opposed to getting sink and run. Whereas then we saw the extreme, which was the Laminar Express, where if you fly open big time, that pitch will take off with tons and tons of lateral runs. So essentially, the way I would explain it to kids is like, you don't have to, th- just because you throw a changeup now, doesn't mean you have to throw it to every location in the zone. Because you should understand that glove side is basically your worst version of it because it'll have less two-plane break. And it'll also be harder because you kind of have to come back through it to get it to that side of the plate. You have to hold on to it longer. Middle of the plate's pretty darn good. Arm side third, very good. Arm side uh, corner is like your best. So it kind of goes from okay, good, better, best as it goes towards your arm side of the plate. Have you seen that? Like, would you agree, disagree with that statement for disco yeah, balls? I can't, I, I can't really speak to that. I, I have a confession that the way I analyze these changeups is only vertical. I only look at what's happening vertically. So mm-hmm. I never really paid much attention to, to where it is in the zone. And uh, I mean, what you just said is kind of new to me. Uh, it makes perfect sense. Well, could you pull up, uh, could you pull up the Hinchcliffe video again? And that was actually an example. That's why I thought about that. Yeah. If you look at, I have several of his changeups too, on not on the slide presentation, but, um, yeah, let me get him back. So you're talking about the, the, the the new one, not the old one, right? Yeah. Cause the, cause the old one, even though it was different spin, it was thrown more like the, it started on the arm side third and you could see it had a pretty good lateral break component to it. Whereas with his new one, started more on the, the chest, uh, like the glove side half. You're so this that. one, yeah. So this yes. one is basically targeted to the glove side half and comes back a little bit, but it's pretty, pretty straight up and down. But I, I would bet you that if he starts that pitch on his arm side third, it has significant more lateral movement than this one was because of where it started. Like it just doesn't, it's hard, like the way you manipulate it and it comes off your fingers changes, even with a slight variation with the, the, la- the initial lateral trajectory. Well, I'll, I'll point Connor to this and, and uh, ask him to, to speak because I'm sure he has plenty of experience with this. And, and mm-hmm. uh, if you're right about that, I'm sure, I'm sure you can comment whether he thinks you're right or wrong about that comment. Mm-hmm. I'll do that. And that's why it's so hard. And that's why even when you see guys who are really good at manipulating the ball, like Greg Maddox, that pitch has, I mean, think about how many guys over the course of history could throw that Corey Kluber, Greg Maddox inside to a lefty comes back over the plate to seamer. I mean, it's, it's, it's like so infrequent because that's the hardest spot where you're reaching out, holding onto the ball a little bit longer to get it to that side of the plate as a righty. And then to still impart the type of spin that will then bring it back over the plate it's incredibly hard. So even guys that could make a two-seamer really sink and run, a lot of times they can't do it to that side of the plate, which is an interesting phenomenon. And then you wonder like what changes in their release point as they start to move their initial trajectory towards their glove side or arm side. So because as you get really far to your arm side, like if you start a sinker, like Blake Trina is a great example because that insane sinker, right? If he throws that on the glove side or the arm side third, it'll never be a strike. Whereas if he throws it on the glove side corner, which I mean, this is obvious, but 
it'll also it'll always be a strike probably, but it'll also break a lot less than when he throws on his arm side. Hmm. So, um, but so, most pitchers can't get it to break at all going to their glove side. A little bit changed the topic, but I think we hit on this a minute ago. We we're talking about what's happening with people over time. So this is Strasburg's changeup vertical movement starting way back when he came into the league. And the, to me, this is really interesting that starting in about 2018, 2019, his vertical movement on that changeup started, I think, really methodically moving down. And what's another thing that's interesting, if you go look up the vertical movement on Scherzer's changeup, it's right here at zero. And mm-hmm. I think what's happened is he's been coached by, or, or pattern, he's patterning what Scherzer does. And he's gotten that disco ball better and better over time. So I think it can be done better or worse. I think this is kind of typical. This is the, the three inches of vertical movement is what Magnus will do to that spin axis. And then this is basically him using seams to kill the mm-hmm. Magnus and push it downward. Interesting. So sorry if that's a little bit of a shift, but I, I, I wanted to get that slide in there before, before no. we start talking. No, that makes sense. Um, so I had a, uh, a poll that I put on my Twitter yesterday, and I'll informally ask you as well. Say you have a guy with a, uh, a high-spin four-seamer, throws pretty hard from high over the top, and you could pair two pitches with him, cutter, slider, cutter, curveball, sinker, slider, or sinker, curveball. Which, which would you choose? Well, boy, um, my, I naively would probably choose the, the four-seamer and a curveball. Um, but – well, he has a four-seamer. He needs either a cutter or a sinker or a slider and a curveball. Okay. He comes um, standard with a four-seamer. Okay. <laughs> I mean, from what I've seen, and, you know, I, I, I don't know anything from the hitting side at all. So, from what I've seen, I, I'm just amazed by how baffled hitters are by sliders. Uh, and I, I hear a lot of people talk about, the, you know, Joe, uh, uh, Eric uh, Sims, the uh, band sliders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> especially 95 mile an hour sliders. Yeah. It, it does seem like it's an unfair pitch because a pitcher, a batter can't recognize it for what it is and they miss it by a foot. You don't see people swinging at curveballs and missing them by a foot. Yeah. Curveballs are an interesting animal because A, they're tougher to throw for called strikes. Uh, it seems like the strike zone effectively is smaller for curveballs. Yeah. That's just like the visual representation yeah, I, of it to the umpire i don't know but it's yep. it's a t- it's, i think it's the pitch has died for a good reason and what's really interesting about it is so i, I saw your th- son you showed me a video of him throwing a slider but what's what's interesting is that almost every kid grows up learning a curveball as his first breaking ball but yet more pitchers in the big leagues throw sliders than curveballs and more pitchers in college probably throw sliders than curveballs i don't yeah, have to I think it goes that, back but, to what you said a, a bad slider is really bad a bad curveball still uh, okay, so uh, when you don't know what you're doing, maybe the curveball's better. Yeah, it, it, it seems like there's a little bit of a stigma about teaching a slider. I think there's still some misunderstanding that like a slider's harder on your arm than a curveball. I'm not sure the the data from like ASMI, their biomechanics research, corroborates that. I think they're both lumped in with the breaking ball category. That they're both just kind of not ideal until you're a little bit older uh, on your arm, and they don't exactly know the mechanism behind that because biomechanically the fastball is the most strenuous pitch on your arm puts the most stress on it but kids that throw more breaking balls report more arm pain than kids that don't so um but my part of my question with that was so there's anecdote and i would also fall into this this category that guys that can spin the fastball really well so for more background on me i started to figure out and this was back in like 2014 where there really wasn't 
all this spin rate data really, I think, started taking off in like 2016, 17. That's where it became a lot more well-known to players. I started putting the pieces together because I had a 10-inning stretch as a reliever where I didn't get a single ground ball out. Like everything was strikeout or fly out. I'm like, this is inconvenient when I have a runner on first and one out. I'd really love a ground ball, like a hard ground ball right now. And I physically couldn't find a way to get one except by throwing a cutter. Um, and what a lot of guys have anecdotally said is that guys that can spin a fastball really well, that they get really through the center of their four seamer. They tend to have that like speeds up and rises, which we now know is like a high spin rate. They tend to suck at throwing footballs. I also can't, I also can't, I also can't throw a football. Um, now I've never sat down and spent tons and tons of time cause I never really cared. But if you just like give me a football, it just doesn't, my body doesn't get it. And so uh, that's kind of consistent with the whole gyro thing that we keep coming back to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, uh, football is pure gyro, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and so if you're trying to throw, if you're a person that can throw a good high to efficiency, high fastball, that's a, that's the opposite of that. If you are a yeah. sinker baller or somebody that lives at the bottom of the zone and wants to ground balls, you probably have some gyro to it. And going mm-hmm. back to coaching kids, so I'm a, I'm a very amateur kids coach, um, and we have a rap soda that we can mess around with our kids. When I see the kid with a low-efficiency fastball, I say, throw that low in the zone. And when you see the kid with a high-efficiency fastball, yeah, you're going to get high strikes, swings and misses. And I think mm-hmm. that's a really um, – so some, some people will say, hey, why, would, why would you put a 13-year-old on a rap soda? That's the first thing I want to know. Where should the fastballs go, high or low? Um, because of your, your, your natural tendency towards gyro. So I'm curious if you agree with that approach or not. Well, uh, so I, I do and I don't. The, the problem with developing young pitchers is that if you allow them to be up in the zone, even when you preach at kids, uh, even in college, guys are still struggling to try to be down the zone. And really it's not as much as we want, especially today, that we want your pitches to actually end up down the zone. It's that you need to have the ability to throw stuff downhill. Because basically, if you're one of those pitchers that I only throw stuff up, it's not only going to affect your fastballs. And if you learn that my fastball can always be belt high and above and that's okay, well, why would your trajectory suddenly be different when you want to throw a curveball or a slider or a changeup or a sinker that has to be thrown at a downhill trajectory to actually have good movement? Because the only pitch that's actually like worth spit up in the zone is a four-seamer. Two-seamers up in the zone suck. Sinkers up in the zone flatten out and they suck. Sliders, curveballs and cutters all pretty much suck when they're thrown high. So if you, as a young pitcher, you only learn that I can throw chest high and it's fine. Then you never really develop the mechanics and the feel for throwing stuff down the zone because now it's like I threw four fastballs up. Now I got to bury a slider. You're not really going to have the ability to do that. Mm. Whereas all the guys in the big leagues, they all have the ability to command the bottom of the kneecap anytime they want and they can choose to go up when they want to go up. And for some guys, they make that choice almost 100% of the time. I was one of them. I learned I gave up home runs and doubles when I was at the bottom of the zone. And when I was at the belt or above, no one ever hit the ball for an extra base hit. Like, they couldn't get on top of it. So I learned that. But at the same time, I could make that choice because I spent my career understanding my mechanics and, like, my default was down. And then say, okay, I can pitch up but I still can get my curveball down. I still can get my, my changeup down. So that's why that's a little bit of a misnomer, I think, for young players because their set point and their mechanics has to be throwing the ball downhill. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, and it's interesting. I think uh, it's going to change the way I approach that. So thank you. <laughs> 
Well, and, and the other thing that I wanted to touch on earlier is that what's, and this is something you'd never notice with major league guys because they're so good at repeating their delivery, but with young players, I mean, really the hand is a slave to the rest of the body. So when I'm teaching a kid a curveball for the first time or a changeup or whatever, if their mechanics are kind of sloppy where their front side goes out or they spin a lot or their head moves a lot, what tends to happen is their hand goes with it. Right. And so if you're trying to help a kid improve his spin axis on his curveball, for example, and get it to be straighter and, and cleaner, if he's got a lot of rotation, like extra like front side rotation as he starts to accelerate, his hand is always going to go out just like with centrifugal force, essentially. It's going to go to the side of the ball as his chest rotates really hard. Um, and so a lot of the, it, like the spin stuff is going to be determined by what happens prior. And so for me, when I was catching a lot of, a lot of kids, especially as they're learning curveballs, I can tell, by the way, when they land and their first movement towards the plate, I can tell where the pitch is going to go generally just by their first movement. Because if I see this where they yank out, I know the ball is going to be st kind of stuck behind and it's going to go up and into a righty if they're righty. It's going to just lag behind. Whereas if their first movement is their chin and their chest come at me, now they have a chance to actually deliver their hand forward and get the kind of spin that you actually want. And so for young players, it's really hard to help them. Even if you're saying, hey, this is how you spin it. This is, they could maybe never get it right if they're always rotating open or they have a major mechanical flaw that just essentially just precludes them from getting their hand into any kind of repeatable position. So when you talk about, you know, helping pitchers improve their spin at the highest levels, it's really just understanding. It's a lot of fine dexterity and like, what are you trying to accomplish? How can we manipulate it? What's the feel? But for young players, it's like way more macro than that. It's like, what is your body actually doing first? And then, okay, when you're, pretty clean with your mechanics then we can start to kind of manipulate the ball but it's almost like cart before the horse if uh if they just have really rough mechanics have you right. seen kind of seen that with that with that kind of line up with your, some of your experience yeah with, with my own kid definitely and the video that i sent you where he was um, he, that was just a release drill he's just doing this mm -hmm. and he's getting this bad gyro i thought well this is all about his hand but um it was definitely proved to be that um it, it was really about his legs at the end of the day. And I thought he's standing still, so it can't be about his legs, <laughs> but the way yeah. he would release the ball is the way he would release the ball when he, he does a full pitch and changing his legs actually fixed the gyro. And I, I was pretty amazed and, and learned a lot that day. Yeah. Well, and the pitching and the pitching motion is, is interesting because it's obviously rotational, but it's not like you try to rotate. Essentially your body will rotate. And really it's more like when you land, you're sort of pushing your chest and your chin towards the plate. And when you do that, like the rotation will happen, but then you don't get too spinny because when you get yeah. too much spin, like, then, you know, you, you watch guys like Bumgarner and Sale, it's probably way harder to do what they do. Like they're controlling a lot more variables than right. a pitcher yeah. that. I want like, to mimic that. For <laughs> yeah. And, and some kids throw really well like that, but others, yeah, it's, it's a really big struggle. The drill that, that Jared Hughes suggested to Sam was just to put a bucket on the ground and when you release, bring your leg up over the bucket. And like I said, it solved the, I was, he did that about five times and then we went out and threw the ball and it was, it was gone right? mm -hmm. immediately. And, and uh, I still am kind of amazed. <laughs> I mean, he went from 50% efficiency to 100% efficiency in one throw. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's pretty much stayed there. 
So, yeah. And it was, it's all just about making sure that, like you said, that that chest is coming forward mm-hmm. and you're, you're driving off the mound. Well, and the other thing that's, that's interesting is grip. Um, a lot of kids, like they will have their fingers forked too far yeah, and this could be, and this is, yeah. And this is highly variable because you'll get one kid that's got their fingers forked really far and they throw a nice clean four seamer. Then you get another one and he's putting so much spin with his index finger or his, uh, his middle finger that he's cutting it. And then if you move them close together, they act like one finger and now they have a lot better spin through the center of the ball. So it's yeah, like little stuff like that can be it too. I have a hard time getting him to do that, um, to, to keep him together. He feels like the ball's not stable. So he's, he's kind of out like that. Yeah. Well, and that's something Alan and I talked about before when, when they switched to low seam balls in the college game, he and I were talking about it. And if you ever get one of those old, and this is a, a youth ball, the bigger the seams are, the more the ball feels effectively square. Yeah. I have one of the, this is not an NCAA ball, but it's got that high seam. It's more like mm-hmm. a rec ball. Yeah. Don't they feel kind of more square just the way, I guess the seams are. But I've heard that comment a lot. And mm-hmm. uh, it, uh, it's a, uh, it's, it, I'm really curious about the properties of these kinds of balls because the seams are so much bigger that uh, I didn't mention this, but all the seam shifted wake stuff that I've talked about seems seems to uh, be proportional to how high the seams are. And, hmm. um, and so when you have a ball, these are like 50 thousandths of an inch, an MLB ball. This one's about 20. <laughs> uh, they, they average about 35. So um, uh, this seems like you could make amazing things happen with it, but I haven't really seen that demonstrated yet. Yeah. I'd well, like to get an MLB pitcher throwing one of these square balls and see what happens. Oh, would he, would, he, he would hate it. And it would, it, would, <laughs> it would be weird. And one of the things that college guys – this used to be a college problem. It's not anymore because the balls are more similar. But you go from an, throwing an NCAA ball, you get drafted, you go into pro ball, now you have this flat seam ball. And it feels more round in your hands. And so guys, their first couple of times out will just be throwing accidental cutters, accidental mm-hmm. – like they're, it's just doing weird stuff because essentially the way their fingers were, the descending edges are kind of like more sudden because they just, it feels smaller and more round with the lower yeah. seams. And you're just like, eh, what's happening? And there's always like an adjustment period, which this is what's really baffling about going from the minor leagues to the big leagues. Like they have to throw a different ball on their big league yeah. debut. That yeah. seems, as, that seems asinine. Like it's they should crazy. be throwing, of course they, they fixed that last year by putting the, the major league ball in triple A ballparks, but right. Right. Yeah, there was no. a Braves pitcher years ago that they picked up for nothing because he, he had been with another team and on the minor league side, and they said this stuff doesn't work. Braves picked him up, and he had a great year. And somebody asked what happened because I can't throw the minor league ball. <laughs> so yeah, one thing that I think baseball should do is much more standardize the baseball and, and because it matters. And, and the, you're playing different games with different baseballs. And even within the yeah. major leagues, if I can get into another topic that Alan and I spent a lot of time on together, um, it's amazing to me how much major league baseball is varied from one ball to the next and one, from one year to the next. And yeah. I, I really feel like that needs to get under control. Well, in minor league balls too, I mean, they're, you can get half the ball has a high seam, half the ball has a low seam, has low seams. It's like yeah. th- there's super variance between each one and guys are constantly throwing them out. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's weird. It's, it's a strange system, but they're, of course they're manufactured in different places. And that might be one of the, the reasons and Meredith Wills would know a lot more about that. But, um, like the major league balls made in Costa Rica and like a small plant, obviously all balls are made by hand, but the minor league balls are all made in, in Taiwan or China, somewhere else, completely different part of the world. So I, I wonder out loud if, if, if they were to just do switch to the major league ball, if they would even have the capacity to make it for all the minor leagues as well. I'm not sure. 
I'm sure they could figure it out, but I don't know. So Barton, where, uh, where do you feel like all this is going? What do you want people to know as we start to wrap up here? Um, I mean, you, you've said that you think disco ball chainups are going to become much more common in the future. Um, where's the, the seam shifted wake, uh, research from you and others. Where is that going? Uh, here's what we would like to do. We, we have a idea, we have a model for how seam shifted wake works, but it's a, it's a little bit primitive right now based on some kind of simplistic assumptions that we've learned aren't exactly true. So we're trying to, we're trying to uh, acquire some more data to improve that model. And once we have it, we're simply going to turn it loose and say, tell me every combination of gyro orientation, two dimensions, speed, RPM, all this stuff. And tell me what the outliers are. Tell me what the, you know, the pitches that do something incredible. And then I want to find a pitcher that can, that's willing to try to throw the ball that way. And I think that that will steer us to pitches that have never been thought about before. And I think the potential there is, is huge. So that's, that's our kind of dream scenario. Uh, I don't think it's that far-fetched at all. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, um, as I said, I, I think that now that I think pitches are starting, this is just starting to creep into the majors where people realize this stuff can happen. I think there's going to be more guys like Jared Hughes who are doing it on purpose. And, uh, and I think it's going to make a big difference. I, I uh, so I have predicted 2020. I, I hate to use 2021 because it's a shortened season, but I think we have a new year of the pitcher coming. And so far this year, I want to point out, uh, I think that that's at least a couple of days ago. Um, the ERA in baseball was lower than it was in 1968. <laughs> hmm. Wow. That's probably just because everyone's, everyone's distracted. Yeah, <laughs> no, one, <laughs> no one has any focus. We've been on Zoom calls too much. Hitters yeah, can't focus anymore. Wearing a mask and all that maybe. I, I don't know. Could be. Yeah. So where, uh, where can our viewers and listeners uh, find out more about you? What kind of stuff do you have if they want to learn more about all this stuff? We have, we have a website. It's uh, baseballarrow.com. Um, just the word baseballarrow, one word.com. And uh, you can Google my name. Uh, it'll come up. Um, and that's most of what we have is there. Um, I, I, I mentioned before that uh, we recorded a Zoom call where I went through my entire presentation. I think you watched that mm-hmm. a little bit ago. Um, I'm happy to, obviously the link to that is something I can't quote on the on a, on a podcast, but I'd be happy to send anybody that link. And I've already received one email while we're talking, asking for that. So that's the most complete description of everything we've done so far that I have out there. Awesome. Well, uh, if you're out there, definitely follow uh, Barton Smith on Twitter at not real certain and uh, Barton. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. This was a, it was a fun talk. I learned a lot. I mean, this I appreciate is it very much thank above you. my pay grade. So it's, it's nice to be pushed. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for the things you've taught me. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to hearing more about uh, teaching youth with you. Yeah, I'm sure we'll keep in touch for sure. All right. So if you're out there, thanks so much for listening. Um, we will see you next Tuesday on the morning brushback. <laughs>